All right, Luke 13. We said from Luke 9:50 through 19 about 10. That whole section, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. It is it's his final trip to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. Spends a bunch of time focused on discipleship. What does it look like to follow him? And so we've been looking at all of that. The last three weeks, we looked at a really weighty, heavy sermon that he gives in chapter 12 in the beginning of chapter 13. He says, watch out for hypocrisy. That's something that can shipwreck your faith. You need to be honest about our relationship with him. We don't need to be afraid of other people. Watch out for greed, another huge issue where we live that can shipwreck your faith. We don't want to hoard. We don't want to be selfish. We don't want to worry. We want to be generous people. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this idea of watching for Jesus. He's going to return. We don't know when, but we want to be ready. And we said ready looks like living a life of repentance and Bearing fruit. So that sermon has closed. We're going to look at two scenes today as he continues on his way to Jerusalem. Scene one, chapter 13, verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. So that's the setting for this first scene. The synagogue on a Sabbath. A woman was there who'd been crippled by spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, woman, you're set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there's six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So Jesus in the synagogue teaching, he knows the rules. We've talked about this multiple times. No work on the Sabbath. Healing was considered work. He knows that and he deliberately stirs the pot. This woman knows that and she doesn't ask to be healed. Jesus takes the initiative. There's no indication that the woman expressed any interest in Jesus healing her. Obviously, she was thrilled that he did, but she was not approaching him for that. Jesus takes the initiative. He knows the rules. He chooses to heal her, and the response is predictable. The woman is thrilled because now she can stand up straight. The synagogue leader is indignant because Jesus has broken one of the, one of the rules. Don't work on the Sabbath. It's not a necessity. It's not a life or death situation. She'd had this condition for 18 years. She could have it for another day. Just come back tomorrow is what the synagogue leader says. And then Jesus blasts him. Hypocrites, we've said, those are people who wear masks. Their outsides and their insides are not aligned. For this guy, what Jesus is saying is, outwardly, you're very pious, you're religious, you're following all these rules. It it seems like you love God and you love people, but what is being revealed is you don't really. You care more about your animals than you do this woman. If your animals are bound up, you set them free to get water on the Sabbath. This woman is bound up. Why can't we set her free? To be refreshed and renewed on the Sabbath. The reason God gave us the Sabbath was for rest and restoration and renewal. How in the world am I going against the heart of the Sabbath by setting this woman free, by allowing her to stand up straight? doesn't even make 
sense. You're so lost in your own ways here. You're so confused about what God actually desires. You're so confused about his heart for people that you're, you're mistaken this healing that sets this woman free. You're saying that that is something that actually breaks the law of God. Why does he do that? I've wondered, like, why would he kind of poke the bear? Why would he choose to stir that pot? We see, we'll see again. He does it again next week. It seems to be a favorite thing for him to heal on the Sabbath just to see what kind of reaction he can get. I think there was more going on. I absolutely think he wanted to see, and he wanted the synagogue leader to see what was in his heart. When you're wearing a mask, when there's pressure, it's difficult to keep that facade up. We kind of crack, and what's actually in us comes out of us. And Jesus put pressure on the synagogue leader. When he healed this woman, it called into question his control of the situation, as well as the things that he was convinced were right. And so I think that pressure allowed what was in his heart to come out. And what came out was he was indignant at the work of God. And I think what Jesus was hoping, he wasn't hoping to humiliate him. I think what he was hoping was this guy would see, maybe I'm not quite as far down the road as I thought I was. Maybe I need to reevaluate some things. That's not what happened. But I think that was part of what Jesus was trying to do. I think the bigger issue is you've got these folks coming to the synagogue every Saturday. They show up every Saturday for worship. And in their world, if you're a regular person, you live every day, every week, every month, under every year, under this constant sense of disappointing God. Your religious leaders have told you the way to right standing with God, the way to maintain right relationship with him is to keep the law really well. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. We've talked about this before. And then there's hundreds of laws that are wrapped around those 613 that were created with the best of intentions by the rabbis. If you're a regular person, you've got no hope at keeping up with all that stuff. You've got to put food on the table. You've got to raise your kids. You've got not to mention just learning all of them. You're most likely you're illiterate trying to learn 613 laws plus hundreds and hundreds of additional rules. It's overwhelming. And so what you've been taught is the key to right standing and right relationship with God is keeping the law really well. And you know from your own experience, you don't do that very well. And you show up every Saturday to the synagogue and you're reminded that you don't do that very well. And you're thankful that there are people who do. You're thankful for the synagogue leader and the other Pharisees who can keep the law really well because you aren't doing so hot yourself. And I think what Jesus is doing is time out. I want to show y'all who God really is. He's not a God who sits back to see how well you can follow the rules. He's a God that steps in to heal people who are hurting. He's trying to flip their understanding of this God that they're worshiping. He wants them to see this is the one that you're worshiping and serving. And notice their reaction. They're thrilled. They're not just thrilled for this woman. They understand what Jesus is doing and saying. They know there are other places where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And the, the regular people get it. If God was not working through him, these people would not be healed. The fact that they're healed means God is working through him. Which means the things that he's saying are true and authoritative. And we can wrap our life around that. And how much better to wrap your life around a God who steps in versus a God who sits back. And then he moves straight from talking about God's heart to two parables that talk about God's rule, God's reign, God's kingdom. So this is who God is and here's how he works. And he says, when Jesus says kingdom, what most people think is 
international superpower. Israel's going to become the international superpower. That's what they're thinking. And Jesus is saying, no, no. it starts small, just like a mustard seed. It's, it's, there's just a little, like leaven. It does grow, and it is powerful, but it starts small. And he's tying it back into this woman's healing. And you may say, that's insignificant. You healed one lady, and her condition, it was sad, but it wasn't critical. And I think what Jesus wants to say is, yes, that's small. That's just me healing one person, but that, there are ripples. That's an expression of the kingdom, and that grows. And even when it's small, it's powerful. He frames her healing in light of overcoming Satan. Satan has bound her, and now she's set free, which means what? Jesus is stronger than Satan. That's a huge deal. There's power even in that one act of healing this one woman. And then Jesus leaves. Scene two. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he, as he made his way to Jerusalem. So now he's on the road. Someone said, Lord, there are only a few people going to be saved. He said, make every effort. To enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he'll say, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you'll say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourself thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus goes out and he begins to walk around. He's teaching. I think the connection between these two things is small. Well, if the kingdom is small, and I'm thinking of the kingdom in terms of geographic uh, boundaries. Then the natural question is, well, who gets in? How many people are going to be saved if this kingdom at least begins small? The, the, I think the guy asking the question assumes, well, I'm getting in. I just wonder who else will get in. And Jesus doesn't answer his question. He addresses the real issue. The issue is not how many people get in or don't get in. The issue is, are you going to get in? He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. It, it's not what you think. As a typical Jewish person, if I hear kingdom of God, I assume I'm in because I'm one of God's chosen people. That's me. I'm a Jew. I'm part of the chosen people of God. And so whatever it means to be saved, it applies to me. We've talked before. There's thousands and thousands of people following Jesus around at this point. They're not all committed. Various levels of interest, but there are thousands and thousands of them with him at this moment. And they're probably thinking, well, we're Jews, so we're good. And maybe we're doubly good because whatever Jesus is doing, because we're hanging out with him, we'll get the benefit of that as well. And what Jesus says is, don't not so fast. You might be surprised to see who winds up entering in and who winds up getting shut out. Many who are last, Gentiles, people who are coming from the nations, east, west, north, south, they're going to wind up in. And many of you Jews who right now see yourself as first, as God's chosen people, you're going to wind up on the outside looking in. You need to make every effort 
to enter the kingdom of God. The way is, the door is narrow. And then what I want you to hear about this last part, when we hear narrow door, we can think God is stingy. He's, um, he begrudgingly uh, allows people to enter into a relationship with him. He's tight with salvation. I want you to see that last thing. Jesus, again, reaffirms his commitment to the Father's mission. I'm going to Jerusalem. I know what's going to happen when I get there. They're going to, they're going to kill me, but that's my, that's my mission. That's my deal, and I'm headed there. But you can see his heart breaking for Jerusalem, even as he's doing that. The compassion that he has for the very people who are rejecting him. So when you hear narrow door, I want you to hear narrow door in light of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I've longed. Both of those things need to be held together. So I don't want you to think narrow door means God is stingy when it comes to salvation or he somehow delights and people who are left outside, that's not the case. What does he say? How I've longed to gather you together, but what? You've resisted. The issue is not on God's side. The issue is on our side. Two things I want you thinking about as we close. One, if you have not yet committed to fully following Jesus, this second scene is for you. This idea of narrow door in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's God's word to you this morning is make every effort. To enter now. None of us, none of us, I don't know that, I know most of you, I don't know that any of us have Jewish heritage in our background. So we don't necessarily see ourselves because of birth as people who are favored by God. Like we don't think, well, because I was born Jewish, then I'm in. Most of us don't think that way. But we do think lots of things, kind of salvation by default. We talked a few weeks ago, we're all born oriented away from God. So if that's him, we're all born oriented away from him. And it takes a deliberate and intentional act on our part to turn towards him. That's what the Bible calls repentance. But for some of us, we think, well, I attend church. So that's like a step towards God. Or I was baptized when I was little, and that's a step towards God. Or I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anybody. That's a step towards God. Or I've done Bible studies, and I know a lot about Jesus. I can name the 12 disciples, and I know the Ten Commandments. And so that's a step towards him. But fundamentally, my posture... It's still one of rejection. My back is still to the Lord. And so I think that's maybe the application for us. There's no salvation by default. There's no salvation by accident. It's an intentional and deliberate decision on my part to say, I've rejected you, and now I'm turning and accepting you and recognizing my need for a Savior. I recognize I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. That deliberate act is repentance. And short of that... There is no salvation. That's what he's trying to get the Jews to recognize. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter about your ethnicity. It really doesn't matter how good a person you are. It doesn't even matter that you've been hanging around with me. That you can say you know about me. What I'm going to say is, well, I don't know you. There's no relationship here. In order to enter into that relationship, that turning has to happen. You can't be in relationship to someone with your back to them. I can know about, but I don't know. And so repentance now opens me up and makes relationship possible. Which That's what salvation is, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, knowing you. Salvation is not about where we end up. It's about who we're with. It's a relational truth there. And so I, none of us need to think that we're going to somehow accidentally or by default wind up in relationship with God. It requires that. It's not hard, but it is intentional 
and it is deliberate. Some of us, we hear narrow door and we say we're out. Some of you, and maybe you know people and love people who say too exclusive. There's too many people who are outside of that scope of Christianity. I can't believe a loving God would allow that many people to go to hell. That many people to be separated from him forever. If he truly loved people, then there wouldn't be one way. There'd be like a billion ways. He would create multiple avenues. He would recognize that some people are born into certain families and certain cultures and under certain religious systems. They're never going to hear the gospel. It's just not fair. And if that's the kind of God he is, then I'm out. I don't want you to hear narrow door as, again, God being stingy, God being narrow-minded, God being tight when it comes to salvation. The door is narrow. That's a description of reality. It's narrow because it has to be narrow. This is 1 Timothy 2. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men, all humanity to be saved. So there you see heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Narrow door. Who gave himself as a ransom for all men, heart, the testimony given in its proper time. You see the tension there. God says, I want them all. Everybody. I want all of them to come in. There's only one door because there's only one mediator. You know what a mediator is. It's someone who makes peace or brings reconciliation between two estranged parties. The best mediators can relate to both parties. You can relate to both people, A and B. Jesus is the only one who's ever lived who can do that. This is some things about Jesus. He was fully God. He says about himself, no one's seen the Father except the one who's from God. Only he's seen the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus can adequately and accurately reflect God to humanity. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else has been in God's presence the way Jesus has. Jesus was sent by God to say, here, word made flesh, God with skin on. To accurately, adequately communicate who God is to us. He represents God to us. Nobody else can do that. He's also fully human. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way yet was without sin. Just as we are yet was without sin. So to God, he can accurately and adequately represent us. The door is narrow because there's only one guy who can do that. There's only one guy who can accurately and adequately represent God to humanity and at the same time can accurately and adequately represent humanity to God. Again, the door is it's narrow not because God wants to keep a bunch of people out. It's narrow because only one person fits the qualifications for being a mediator. Here's a picture for you. Sin is a barrier. Jesus says in John, he's the gate. Your Bible may say he's the door. Well, why aren't there more gates? Why aren't there more doors? Because nobody else has busted through the barrier. He's the only one who's adequately dealt with the sin problem. In the Old Testament, when an animal was sacrificed as a way of forgiveness for sins, the animal had to be, had to be uh, outwardly perfect. No blemishes, couldn't be crippled, couldn't be maimed, couldn't be blind. Malachi 1, God jumps all over the people because they're bringing substandard sacrifices. I'm not even going to look at that. If that's true for animals that cleanse us outwardly, how much more is it true for a sacrifice that cleanses us inwardly? I've never met anybody who said they've lived a perfect life. Everyone I've ever talked to has said, absolutely. 
I've blown it. They might not call it sin, but they recognize they haven't lived a perfect life. Nobody else can be the gate because all of us have a sin problem. We need somebody to be the gate for us. The door is narrow. The way is narrow. The gate is narrow because there's only one guy who qualifies as a mediator. It's narrow because there's only one guy who could adequately break through the barrier, who could deal with the sin problem. I think that picture is a good one. I don't think there's a door. I think it's just an opening. And I think anybody that wants to come in can come in. This is my theology. You don't have to buy into it. I don't believe there's anybody who desires a relationship with God who's in hell. Everyone who wants a relationship with God, I think, has one. Luke 15, we'll look at it in a couple of weeks. God pursues. He pursues wanderers. He pursues rebels. He pursues religious. He pursues people who don't have a clue. He pursues all of them. What he's looking for is not knowledge. We're not saved by knowledge. We're saved by faith. Anyone who with whatever amount of information, revelation, light they have says, God, I want a relationship with you. I think God says, that's what I'm looking for. And he reveals himself to them more and more fully. There's not a whole bunch of people who are outside who are saying, I tried, I tried, I tried, I tried, I tried, I wanted it. I just couldn't find the door. It was too small. I don't think there's anybody like that. Everybody. That wants relationship. God's heart is what? I want everybody. I want them all. I want everybody to be saved. And so if there are people who are saying, I want that as well. I want salvation. I want relationship with God as well. If God wants it and they want it, it's going to happen. So you don't need to worry about people who were born into Muslim families, who were born before the gospel hit their continent, who were born uh, in families where there's no access to a Bible. You don't need to worry about them. Absolutely go. But you don't need to worry. God's got them. He's pursuing them. And if they have, there's anything in their heart that says, I'm, I'm interested, he's going to reveal more and more of himself. Obviously, one of the ways that revelation comes is from us going and speaking to them. But if we don't make it, they're not going to be doomed because of our failure. Is that clear? Good. So what about those of us? Who are following? We've already said yes. That's most of you in the room. You're committed followers of Jesus. What is he saying to us this morning? Those last, those two parables. That's how I want us to close. Let me move this. Tom, Ben, Grayson, I need y'all's help. Come on. I need y'all to grab all that stuff over there with Miss Kim and y'all can bring it up here. Y'all got it. You're strong, strapping young men. Grab all that and come put it right here. So here, we're going to make a mess, and I'm going to make a mess because I want this burned into your head. Two things, mustard seed and yeast. You, mustard seeds start really small. All the way up here. Thanks. Mustard seeds start really small. There's one. They grow really big. Small and insignificant. You're actually sitting on a mustard seed right now, and you don't know it. There's one on every chair. It's so small. It's so insignificant. You don't try to find it. It's stuck to your pants. You can get it. You can get it after the service. But you're sitting on it. And the point is just that there's nothing to it. They're so small. But look what they become. And what I want you to see is the tree on the right is contained in the seed on the left. Everything about that tree is contained in that seed. It's potential, but it's there. When you put a seed in dirt and it gets water and it gets sun, the only thing that the dirt and the water and the sun allow is for the life in the seed to, to, to spring forth. It allows the potential to become reality. Nothing is added to the seed. Does that make sense? The tree is in the seed. 
We talk about community transformation. We want to see our community transformed. I get frustrated because I'm out there looking for trees. Uh, That's what I want to see. I want people to be able to pick any school in Cobb County and say, you know what? My kids are going to be safe there and they're going to get a good education. Public, private. I don't I don't want it to matter. I want all of them to be. I don't want I want people to quit getting divorces. I want the divorce rate to go down. I want the foster kids to get adopted. We want to see those things happen. I want to see these trees. And sometimes I don't see them. I'm going, "Ah, what's going? What's wrong? I have to remember we plant seeds and I can't see them sometimes. They're small. We talk all the time about doing your deal. What's the good? What are the good works God has created in advance for you to do? What's his calling on your life? And sometimes when I say that, sometimes I think even when I think that I'm thinking of trees. I'm thinking of organizations. I'm thinking of getting on the front page of the paper. It's seeds. That's what he's asking us to do. Anybody can send a text message. When somebody's name flashes into your head, you can send them a text message and say, I was thinking about you today. You can send them an encouraging word. You can do that. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he read this whole idea of money we talked about a few weeks ago. He wrestles with that. He, 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 he tends to hold it kind of tight because he's afraid he's not going to have enough in the future. And he told me the other day he bought something for somebody, and they owed him $25, and they gave him the check. And he knew that they weren't doing so great money financially, and he ripped the check up. And he just told me that. He didn't even tell them. He just told me. That's a seed. That's him saying, I'm not giving in to, it's small, it's just $25. But that's a seed in his heart that says, greed's not going to win. And worry's not going to win. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to trust the Lord. That, over time, becomes a tree. And so for us, it's maintaining that idea, that sense of start small, it grows big. I want that to encourage you this morning. I want you to see that as a bit of a challenge and even an assignment. The kingdom grows. You're a citizen of the kingdom. You're also an ambassador for the kingdom. And so everywhere you go, you can extend the rule and the reign of God. Yeast, even when it's small, very powerful. He says 60 pounds of flour. And so I'm going to show you what 60 pounds of flour looks like. Don't worry. We did this at nine. It worked. So I'm not a baker. I'm sure that's surprising. But I looked it up on the Internet. So it's true. 60 pounds of flour, if you wanted, would take about a third. This is going to be tricky. A third of a cup of yeast. Let's see how this works. So this is 60 pounds of flour. And so what Jesus says is all it takes to work through this whole 60 pounds of flour is that much yeast. That's a third of a cup. Now, I told you, I'm making a mess because I want this to be burned into your brain. This is you. Take a picture. That's good. Take a picture. That's the yeast. Only a third of a cup works for 60 pounds of flour. We can get intimidated. There's just a few of us. How are things ever going to change? Are we ever going to see significant difference? This is what you need to remember. People say God plus one is a majority. God is a majority. He doesn't even need one. And he lives within us. Second Corinthians, this 
precious treasure that we carry around in our hearts. Romans 8, the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. That makes you a majority. You're a citizen of and an ambassador for. And so everywhere you go, you're carrying around with you the presence of God. It only takes a third of a cup. Tim Keller is a pastor of a, a Presbyterian church in Manhattan. He's committed to seeing his community transformed. It's, this isn't gospel, but he's a smart guy and he has experience. He says 10%. That's the tipping point. You get 10% of a population following intentionally after Jesus and you can change a culture. And you maybe you can think about that in your neighborhood or you're all, maybe you've been in a place where just, it just takes a couple of people moving onto the street to change the street. Couple of new employees to change the feel of a department. That type of thing we kind of intuitively know. It doesn't take 51% to change culture. He's figured out it's 10%. This actually is way less than that. This is less than, this is a third of a percent or something like that. What Jesus says. It's just a little bit of yeast. Those are the numbers up there. You can see you live in, those are just three I pulled out Cobb County, Marietta, Kennesaw. Marietta High School has 1,984 students. 10% of that's nothing. It's 200. Think about where you go to school. It's not that many. Think about your floor. It's not that many. Even your company, if it's huge, it's still not that many. Because the Holy Spirit lives within you. Because yeast is powerful. The kingdom of God is influential and impactful beyond its size. We don't need 51%. We don't need overwhelming force. We don't need massive displays. We need mustard seeds that are being planted because they're going to become trees. They start as insignificant and they become huge, dominant. We don't need, it's yeast, just a little bit. But it certainly is powerful and it can impact way beyond its size. Let's pray. Jennifer, Jennifer. God, I want to pray first. If there are any in here who haven't yet made a decision to fully commit to you, I pray that today would be the day, not because I said anything, but they would hear you speaking to their hearts. They would hear you saying, just turn around. I'm here. Just turn around. That's all you got to do. And that they would do so. Maybe even people who've they're good, good people, been in church a long time, know the Bible, know about you. But if they're honest, they'd say they're still living independent of you. They're running the show. Would today be the day that they would surrender? That they would recognize their need for a Savior and a Lord? And that they would say yes? Got to pray for those of us who have said yes. And we're following after you and... God, we, even, we desire to see you work. It's easy to get disheartened. Would you encourage us this morning? I pray that you would speak strongly and clearly into each of our hearts. Hope and faith and perseverance and courage and direction. God, we want to see things change. And every one of you in your mind, you're probably thinking of environments that you want to see changed. Just a little bit of yeast goes a long way in that environment. God, would you give us faith to believe that? And we make ourselves available. 
We recognize we're citizens of the kingdom, and that's because you've adopted us into your family. We don't have to earn that at all. It's a gift, and we receive it. And we also recognize we're ambassadors for your kingdom, that you send us out in the power of your spirit to do good works, to bless other people, and to bring glory to you. And so we say, come on. We're available. Use us. God, for people like me who want to plant trees, would you remind us of the power of seeds? And we'd be content to plant seeds over time and allow you to grow those things in the ways and in the timing that you're, you're, you're wiser than us. And so we defer to you on when seeds become trees. But we want to keep planting. So would you renew our hearts to do that? Even now, would you be speaking to people, ideas? Reach out to this person. Why don't you call them? What about dinner for this person? Why don't you swing by there on your way home from work? What if you tried this in school tomorrow? Just give us that creativity that we could plant seeds. Again, trusting you to turn them into trees. In Jesus' name, amen.